Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The latest drop of the so-called Twitter files zeroes in on the social media platform's ties to the FBI and other government agencies. Elon Musk is getting criticized after Twitter banned several journalists from the platform. Musk says they were banned for safety reasons, while others say they were just reporting information. Dr. Scott Atlas examines recent moves and statements by Dr. Anthony Fauci ahead of Fauci stepping down from his roles. Insights from inside the task force from the radiologist and health care policy advisor. Georgia's Republican Secretary of State has proposed ending the general election runoffs. What are the alternatives? A government shutdown averted. Now Congress is on track to pass a spending bill next week. And how is the White House reacting to Congress repealing the military vaccine mandate? Part six of the Twitter files just came out just hours ago, titled Twitter, the FBI subsidiary. It mainly covers what appears to be collusion between Twitter and various government agencies, most notably the FBI. Journalist Matt Taibbi tweeted on Friday, Twitter's contact with the FBI was constant and pervasive, as if it were a subsidiary. Between January 2020 and November 2022, there were over 150 emails between the FBI and former Twitter trust and safety chief Yoel Roth. The latest batch of Twitter files included some of those emails, showing bureau officials flagging specific people for Twitter to take action against. Even joke tweets from low follower accounts were targeted in some cases. Taibbi highlighted one particular email from November 2020, in which FBI San Francisco notified Twitter contacts that it wants action on four accounts. Based on the emails, the Twitter personnel then went on to look for reasons to suspend all four accounts, including one with tweets that are almost all jokes. Both red and blue-leaning accounts were apparently subject to review. Taibbi described the FBI's relationship with Twitter as having a master canine quality. The files also allege that correspondence between the federal agency and the social media company increased following the 2016 election, stating, The ubiquity of the 2016 Russian interference story as stated pretext for building out the censorship machine can't be overstated. It's analogous to how 9-11 inspired the expansion of the security state. According to the files, the FBI wasn't the only agency pressuring Twitter to moderate content. The Department of Homeland Security and its partner organizations also appeared to feed information and reports to Twitter that impacted decisions on content. As a conclusion, Taibbi wrote that what most people think of as the deep state is really a tangled collaboration of state agencies, private contractors, and sometimes state-funded NGOs. The lines become so blurred as to be meaningless. We've reached out to Twitter and the FBI for a comment and are currently waiting for their response. And Twitter has banned several journalists for allegedly sharing Elon Musk's real-time location information. Musk said that it's a violation of Twitter policy as it could pose harm to a person's physical safety. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Yeah, for sure. Earlier this week, Elon Musk posted this video of a man in a car wearing a mask and a glove. Musk said this man had been following his son. After the tweet, Musk said Twitter will ban anyone who shares real-time information about a user's location. This is called doxing. 
and Musk says he created the new rule for safety reasons. He tweeted, criticizing me all day long is totally fine, but doxing my real-time location and endangering my family is not. On Thursday, Twitter temporarily banned certain journalists from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and CNN. Reporter Donnie O'Sullivan talked about his suspension on CNN that same night. He is claiming on social media that um, I and other journalists uh, shared the precise live location of his jet, and therefore that's why he kicked us off, because we caused danger to him. Certainly, in my case, I didn't. Uh, we we uh, just uh, posted uh, stories about what was happening, him shutting down those accounts. And Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show also reported that several of those suspended journalists said they were not reporting those coordinates at all. And saying the same thing was suspended Washington Post reporter Drew Harwell. During a BuzzFeed group chat, he told Musk, I never posted your address. Musk replied by saying, you posted a link to the address. Musk said he considers posting a link to a person's real-time location to be a physical safety violation as well. But if we don't have Musk that, retweeted a poll on whether real-time doxing should be allowed on Twitter. As of Friday evening, East Coast time, 73% think sharing the real-time location information should not be allowed on Twitter. And in a separate poll on the same page, about 72% agree that temporarily banning is a reasonable way to enforce the policy. Jason Perry, NTD News. Another conservative journalist has been reinstated on Twitter, James O'Keefe, founder of nonprofit investigative journalism watchdog Project Veritas. The group confirmed the news on Twitter today. O'Keefe's account had been suspended since April 2021. That's after he posted a secretly recorded video of a CNN staffer saying the network produced propaganda aimed at defeating former President Trump during the 2020 election. And the FBI responded to our request for comment on the Twitter files. They said, quote, the FBI regularly engages with private sector entities to provide information specific to identified foreign malign influence actors' subversive, undeclared, covert, or criminal activities. Continuing, private sector entities independently make decisions about what, if any, action they take on their platforms and for their customers after the FBI has notified them. And next, Dr. Anthony Fauci says he's concerned about medical misinformation. He told ABC News earlier this week he's worried that it's hurting people and their trust in science. The president's chief medical advisor stepping down at the end of this month has also had his share of criticism. Earlier today, I examined some of those charges with a man who at one time worked closely with Fauci on the White House's COVID-19 response. Dr. Scott Atlas is now a senior fellow in healthcare policy at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Dr. Scott Atlas, welcome to our show. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci is stepping down from his many positions at the end of this month, and he says that one of his top concerns now is health misinformation. What's your take on that? You know, well, I guess the, the biggest word that comes to mind would be ironic because Dr. Fauci personally has, uh, with his really what I would call misinformation, misled the public many times, been less than transparent, denied scientific fact, 
and use fear to sway the public. And so the, all of these things are really uh, abhorrent to what appropriate you know, public health guidance should be. I, I find it really sort of shocking uh, and, and sad that we have somebody who is entrusted by the public who has personally really been a, a very big part of losing the trust that Americans now have in public health guidance and in science in general. You know, just this past weekend, we had Elon Musk tweeting that Fauci should be prosecuted, in part for denying that his agency funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China. The White House is calling Musk's tweet disgusting. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I think that, you know, I'm not somebody for witch hunts. On the other hand, we need transparency. It's very clear the United States, under Dr. Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins, funded research on coronaviruses in Wuhan. That's a fact. The people in Wuhan that wrote the papers acknowledge the grants by number that were NIH grants in their publication. So that's not deniable. The question is, what is the role of, of the NIH, Dr. Fauci, and others in supporting research that was banned in the United States? Because the one thing we cannot have in this country is a use of our government meaning our taxpayer money, to fund research in other countries to get around rules that prohibit research in the United States. So there's no question that we need an investigation of this stuff. And in his recent deposition hearing over big tech and censorship, Fauci reportedly responded to questions about emails, interviews, and other key information with, I don't recall, 174 times. How do you see this kind of response? Um, well, it smacks of someone who's not telling the truth. Uh, I'm not going to call him a liar uh, because I don't know. It's hard to judge the motivation of somebody. But if someone can't remember these kinds of very important things about what they were involved with on the record, uh, in the media, as well as in the uh, internal emails that have been uncovered by FOIA requests, if someone does not have the mental capacity to remember it, and that is a genuine lack of memory, then there's something uh, really, you know, exclusionary about their cognitive ability. So I, I don't think that's probably true. I don't know. But we do know this. I was there. I saw what happened <clears throat> during the four months of being in the White House and my two months in the task force meetings. And what I saw were people, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and Dr. Redfield, who were acting like bureaucrats, not scientists. They did not know the data. They did not recite data at the meetings. They did not refute my points of data with their data. All they did was talk uh, like bureaucrats who, in my view, were threatened by people who knew more than they did. They were busy trying to cover their own jobs with their friends in the media. And it's a disgrace uh, how they use fear to sway the public rather than talked about data. Fauci said during the deposition that the idea for lockdowns came from China, which incidentally is now looking at its fastest growth of COVID cases so far. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, lockdowns uh, are proven to not have worked. Lockdowns by the data, study after study, did not stop the spread of the infection, did not stop the death, 
and obviously do not eradicate the virus. What the public doesn't understand is that lockdowns were never the standard pandemic policy. In 2006, the people credited with eradicating smallpox, Henderson and colleagues, people should look this up, for at least 15 years standard pandemic management said lockdowns are harmful, lockdowns are destructive, lockdowns do not work. And this was factually, scientifically, as well as common sense wise, known at the right in the early stages of this pandemic. I wrote about this in March of 2020 and continued to over the summer. And then finally, uh, when I went to Washington, I was the only one talking about the harms of the lockdowns themselves, the failure of the lockdowns themselves. This was denied by people who were incompetent and didn't know the data, and I'm including doctors Burks and Fauci, who were in charge of the federal guidance, yet that policy, their policy, was implemented in this country. They, uh, those policies caused avoidable death in society's most vulnerable. They caused massive destruction of our children. They caused an ongoing health crisis in our children. We have only seen the tip of the iceberg of the psychological damage, the obesity crisis, and as I said, their policies and the way they acted without data, without critical thinking, have caused a severe loss of trust in public health and in science. And that's very dangerous for a free society. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Atlas, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution of Stanford. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Carrie Lake will be able to inspect some ballots from the 2022 midterm election. A Maricopa County judge granted the Republican gubernatorial candidate permission this morning. Judge Peter Thompson granted Lake's request to inspect randomly selected ballots cast on Election Day and during early voting. In addition, Lake is permitted to inspect 50 ballots from Election Day that were marked spoiled. On Thursday, attorneys from Maricopa County filed a motion to dismiss Lake's lawsuit. They argue that her claims are based on, quote, pure speculation about what might have happened. And it's been a week since Democratic Party Senator Raphael Warnock won the Georgia runoff election. Now, Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger wants to end the runoff requirement. What happens if it ends? And TD's Arlene Richards finds out more. Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, plans to ask the Republican-led General Assembly to get rid of the runoff law. While most states have phased out the runoff system, just Georgia and Louisiana have kept it. Brandy Faulkner, a political science professor, said they might be holding on to the runoff system because of its history. The runoffs became so prominent, specifically in southern states. Now, we have certainly seen over time that runoffs have been used in a couple of different ways, and unfortunately, some of those ways inextricably tied to racialization of political processes. Historically, southern states adopted the runoff system to minimize black voting power. But she said the idea of the runoff was to ensure the winner had the majority of the voters' support, not just a plurality. In Georgia, a candidate must receive at least 50 percent of the votes to win. In 2021, the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, signed a bill that cut in half the time allowed between a general election and a runoff election. It effectively cut early in-person voting from a minimum of 16 days in 2020 to a minimum of five in 2022. 
The Secretary of State said counties struggled to meet the deadlines this year. Faulkner said the runoff can ensure the elected winner actually represents the people. And I think that's why we've had so much attention and focus on increasing voter turnout and making sure that states aren't using voter suppression techniques to limit the number of people who actually show up to vote. She doesn't think increasing voter turnout is a controversial idea, but said that four weeks isn't enough time for a runoff. What would happen if Georgia does end its runoff system? I think there would actually be some excitement and people working even harder to ensure a greater turnout in the general election. Um, but we don't know and until it happens there what might actually be the end result. She said since 2020, other states have opened more early voter locations and increased voter registration. Raffensperger plans to address the legislature when the new term begins in January. The proposed changes may involve opening more early voting locations, allowing a candidate to win without an outright majority or a ranked choice system, which is effectively an instant runoff. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Congress kicks the can down the road on government funding, setting up a vote for a spending bill just before Christmas. And the Senate passed a defense bill repeals the military's vaccine mandate. What's the White House's response? NTD's Melina Wisecup reports. So since it's been established that this National Defense Authorization Act will include a provision that repeals the vaccine mandate for military members, the White House has been very evasive with regards to questions over whether or not President Biden will support this. The White House's official comments on this issue have been that they believe that the repeal of the vaccine mandate is a mistake, while also acknowledging that uh, funding the military is very important. Congress sent this national defense bill over to the White House late last night after overwhelming bipartisan support. Though there were some Republicans who tried to take this a step further, they wanted to require the Pentagon to rehire those military members who had been discharged for rejecting getting the vaccine, though that effort failed after four Republicans joined with Democrats to reject that effort. Um, though this uh, national defense bill still includes that basic requirement that prevents the Pentagon from imposing that vaccine mandate moving forward. However, However, it's still unclear even now if or when President Biden plans to sign this. And in other news, there will be no government shutdown. President Biden this afternoon signed a short-term funding bill that expires next week, but there were 19 Republican sen senators who voted against this. And that's on top of the majority of House Republicans who oppose this effort in the House. And why is that? Well, they take issue with the timing. They wanted to see a short-term funding bill that expired early into next year after Republicans take back control of the lower chamber. Some senators also decrying the rushed process. And my choices are worse and horrible. Uh, the problem is the process here that we should have addressed all this months ago. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked about this process. She admitted that there is a better way to go about this, but she pins blame on the Senate side, uh, saying that they delayed passing the bills on their side of Congress. But now Congress must come back next week to pass this uh, full year funding bill for 2023, just days before Christmas. And the fact of the matter is that only a handful of people have actually seen what's in this bill, and it's supposed to be around $1.7 trillion 
Appropriators are now saying they'll release the official text next week, just days before Congress is expected to pass it. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. A study shows that almost half of all American Christians believe we're living in the so-called end times right now. What's the reason? We hear from an expert on religion. As part of a study, the Pew Research Center asked Americans if they believe we're living in the end times right now. Here are the findings. Overall, almost 40% of Americans believe we are, in fact, living in the end times. The number's even higher when we only look at Christians. Almost half of them say they think so. Only about 30% of believers of other religions, such as Muslims and Buddhists, say the same. And less than 10% of atheists say they think the end is near. Delano Squires is a research fellow of Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. He tells NTD many people think we're living in the end times because they see a rapid moral decline in society and moving away from traditional values. They see um, adults who want to um, expose children to sexual content in schools and in libraries and in public venues. We, we see the government um, promoting this type of behavior. We see the government promoting the castration and mutilation of children in the name of health care. To him, the traditional family of husband and wife is the most important step to move in the right direction. But promoting that norm is seen as not inclusive. People have to walk a thin line to uphold tradition while avoiding hurting others. I think a big part of it is going to require conservatives who speak with moral clarity um, and have you know, embraced the, the courage of, of their convictions, right? You can't Certain things we just have to go through. You can't avoid them, you can't hide from them, you can't go around them or above or, or beneath. We have to go straight through. He says it's evident that the way we're living right now isn't working. What we're doing now is clearly not working, right? Who, who would look at our society now and say that people, people who have the most advanced technology that's, that's ever been created in the history of the world, um, who have every material comfort um, in a country where even many low-income people throw out food on a nightly basis, who would say that we as a society, um, that we're more content, that we're happier, we're more at peace, we exhibit more joy than our ancestors did, you know, a generation ago? The pandemic and high inflation have led to general uncertainty, which some say is another factor in the high number of people who think the end is near. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, WNBA star Brittany Griner missed an entire season while detained in Russia. Will the 32-year-old be able to return to the court? NTD's Dave Martin has her announcement. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Brittany Griner has been free for a week now, and the WNBA star finally broke her social media silence today and made her future plans known. In a very grateful post, the two-time Olympic champion thanked everyone from her family, her legal team, and her friends for advocating for her. She especially thanked President Biden and had a special message for him saying, quote, you brought me home and I know you are committed to bringing Paul Whelan and all Americans home too. 
The 32-year-old then ended the post, saying she intends to play in the WNBA next season with her old team, Phoenix Mercury. And in college sports, The Athletic is reporting that Texas and Oklahoma, which pledged to leave the Big 12 for the SEC a year and a half ago, could leave as early as 2024. Originally, the two were supposed to leave by 2025, but sources told The Athletic that momentum is growing to have them strike a deal with the Big 12 to leave a year early. Now, this pretty much all revolves around media rights. The schools already handed over their grant of rights to the Big 12 through the 2025 season that essentially keeps the schools together until their media agreement expires. But with the SEC ready to welcome the duo in time for their new media agreement, and the Big 12 already adding four new members for next year, while excluding Texas and Oklahoma from conference meetings, there seems to be a willingness to strike a deal. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has 10 games on tap, featuring two-time reigning MVP Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets taking on LeBron James and the Lakers. And for you hockey fans, the NHL has a triple header with Chicago visiting Minnesota, Calgary hosting St. Louis, and the New York Islanders playing at Phoenix. And that's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.